Well, I want to invite you guys now to take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at 25 verses of this great chapter today, but verses that tell us two stories that are closely linked to one another. While you're flipping over there, I want to tell you about a book that I got into uh, on a recent drive. I had some time to kill. Selected an audio book, a little bit off of my normal beaten path. Um, I, I chose a, uh, a best-selling book that's it's kind of part memoir, part pep talk, you might say. Uh, I think it's a helpful window into what apparently millions of folks are listening to for orientation in life, given how many copies it's sold. And, and it was easy from listening to this book to see why it's been so effective and sold so many copies. I mean, it's well written, it's punchy, it's right in your face, and seems to be really close to the kind of concerns that most people walk around with in their lives. But I'm mentioning it now because I think a perspective it offers in the very, right at the very beginning, an introduction to this book, sets up the stories we want to look at today in, in a way that I think is important to see. I want to read you a little selection from the introduction to this book. The truth is that you are strong and courageous and a fighter. But if I'm telling you that, it's because I want you to see those characteristics in yourself. I want to shout at the top of my lungs until you know this one great truth. You are in control of your own life. You get one and only chance to live, only one chance to live, and life is passing you by. Stop beating yourself up. Stop letting others do it too. Stop accepting less than you deserve. Stop buying things you can't afford to impress people you don't even really like. Stop eating your feelings instead of working through them. Stop buying your kids love with food or toys or friendship because it's easier than parenting. Stop abusing your body and your mind. Stop. Just get off the never-ending track. Your life is supposed to be a journey from one unique place to another. It's not supposed to be a merry-go-round that brings you back to the same spot over and over again. Will change happen overnight? No way. This is a lifelong process. You'll try out some different tools and techniques, and while some of them will feel okay, maybe one will feel like the answer, and then 37 different others will feel like garbage. Then you wake up tomorrow and do it again, and again, and again. And you'll fail. You'll fall off the wagon. But once you understand that you are the one who is truly in control, you'll get up and try again. And you'll keep going until being in control feels more natural than being out of control. It'll become a way of life. And you'll become the person you're meant to be. I wonder how that lands on you. That lands on my shoulders like a ton of bricks. I mean, I don't doubt for a second that the person who wrote these words was well-meaning. And there's definitely a lot of truth, even in just the section that I read. There's a lot of warnings that we ought to hear, things that aren't good to do that maybe we're doing. But my goodness, the burden to carry. Because the implication in the words that I just read is that if your life is off the rails, well... You got nobody to blame but the one looking back at you in the mirror. And if you do get up and fail, get up and fail again, and keep on failing till the day that you die and look yourself in the mirror, you still just got the one person to blame. 
and you're looking at them. Is this your burden to carry? Are you really the one in control of your life? What is the gospel to a burden like this one? What does Jesus have to do with it? Early on in the series in Acts, one of the things I mentioned will be helpful for you to remember as we move our way through this book, as we're looking for the, the meaning of each text, story by story. You know, and stories don't always advertise the meaning of them. There's not like some sort of flashing light that says, don't miss this part. This is what you should need to notice. I, one of the things I said, pay attention to is what God is doing underneath the surface in every story. Luke wants you to notice what God is up to. One of the main themes that Luke gives us is the sovereignty of God. And it's a theme that he develops in much the same way that God operates. Just beneath the surface of the text, just beneath the surface of what we can see, there for the tracing, but not always screaming for your attention. And this is the theme I want to try to help you see, the voice I want you to hear out of the text that we work through today. God underneath it all, in control, working his purposes for the good of his people to fulfill all of his promises to his church. And I want you to see that the sovereignty of God that comes through the two stories we look at today is both a great comfort to you and a great challenge to you. The sovereignty of God is a comfort and also a challenge. The comfort of God's sovereignty comes out of the first story that I want to read to you. And I want to begin with verse 1 of chapter 8 and read for now through verse 8 of chapter 8. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is God's word. You can be seated. This, this story that I've just read to you shows us the comfort of God's sovereignty. And that's the first thing I want you to notice as we work our way through these verses. This is a story that begins in sorrow and ends with joy. The chapter opens, no question, at the low point of our overall story through Acts so far. A beloved leader has just been killed for his public faith in Jesus. He would be the first of many. That death wasn't enough to satisfy the leaders of Jerusalem. It was only the beginning of what Luke calls a great persecution that built up like a wave from that day, the day Stephen died, and carried forward all the way across the city. Even 
As these believers wept over Stephen, Saul led men from house to house, ravaging the church, dragging off the men and the women, whomever he could find. And I wonder, can you imagine what that must have felt like for all of these early Christians? What a roller coaster they'd each been on in the last weeks of their lives. Imagine the highs and now the lows that they've had to survive. They've seen dramatic, miraculous power unlike anything that's ever been in the world. We've seen them set free by a message of forgiveness, by a new spirit that comes down on them, bringing new life. We've seen what that freedom looks like in action. We've seen them gather, in other words, into communities where everybody treated their stuff like it wasn't even their own. They were completely free from the kind of posturing and greed that normally dominates us. They just lived. Because every one of them shared the same hope in a resurrected Savior who's promised to give them everything they need. It's been beautiful precious and joyful and now at least for now all of that's over can you imagine the fear that must have set in as Stephen's execution made its way the word of it anyway from home to home and person to person it's not difficult to imagine them soon after hearing of Stephen's death hearing that they weren't done yet hearing that One person after another has been captured and taken off to prison. Home after home entered like a wave that drew closer and closer to each of them. All the while knowing that the same thing that got Stephen killed and all these friends thrown into prison is the faith that you share with them. Can you imagine the fear you would feel? That faith that once drew them together now scatters them all over Judea and Samaria. Can you imagine the grief that they felt? Especially imagine them looking back on those sweet early days from this new and terrible reality. If you've ever suffered a loss of any sort, you know how this works. The more precious the gift was when you had it, the more painful it is to lose it. The sweeter the time was, the more bitter the memory once it's over. And that's where they are right here, right now, running for their lives, surely thinking back on what they had. After Pentecost with new marvels coming one after another after another, day by day, new believers being added to their number, it's easy to imagine them living with this swelling sense of expectation. Like, what next? What's going to happen next? And now... Now how those expectations must have shifted for them. What will happen next? I'd be braced for the worst. It's no wonder they scattered. But I want you to notice what happens next. Verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who scatter, scatter as witnesses to the Jesus whose name has driven them from their homes. Take Philip, for example. One of the men chosen along with Stephen as deacons for the church. He was a man who worked closely with the very first martyr with as much claim on fear and grief as any other. And he runs down to Samaria, and what does he do when he gets there? Well, we're told he proclaims Christ, the Christ who got his friend killed, the Christ who just cost him his home. He proclaims that Christ to anybody who will listen. And listen, they did. 
They heard what he said. They saw the signs that backed his message. They experienced the deliverance from evil spirits and bodies that were healed from their sickness and disability, just like it happened in Jerusalem. They got a taste, in other words, of what this kingdom was all about and the goodness of its king. And so we're told in verse 8 that there was much joy in that city. What began in sorrow for one group in one city ends in joy for another group in another city. And friends, that is no accident. The sovereignty of God isn't often written into these stories in a kind of bold-faced type. But Luke is making a clear and compelling point all the same. Do you remember Jesus' final words to his friends in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? The words that become kind of an outline for this book and how it will unfold. This is what Jesus said in Acts 1, 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And did you notice the language used now? In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This is how the story moves forward. They scatter with the gospel. The religious leaders who have them on the run think they're putting out a fire and all they're doing is fanning the flames because that's how the God of the Bible works like a great judo master who turns the momentum of his enemy against him. It's when Jesus is killed that he becomes most powerful. And it's when these men and women are scattered that the gospel goes exactly where God said it would go. Because he is in complete control and nothing can stop what he's doing. Do you see it yet? Can you see the comfort that there is for us in his sovereignty if we're able to receive it? I mean, just for, for example, let me start with the comfort that this gives to us as, our, as a congregation in our work that he's called us to, to be witnesses to Jesus in our time, in our place, and then through our members around the world. I need the comfort of this text right now. I hope I won't embarrass him, but our brother Mitchell is home. Did you guys know that? Mitchell, raise your hand over here. Mitchell is home from his deployment in Central Asia for just a few weeks, and I know he'd be glad to see you guys through your masks. I've been thinking a lot about Mitchell this week as I prepared and thought about this story and prepared for this sermon, especially because many of you guys will know that, that, uh, that, that Mitchell serves on our behalf in a city surrounded by, by millions of unreached people and had been partnered with a wonderful family who were recently forced to leave that country after years of faithful service. And this family was just humming in their usefulness in that place. I mean, on every metric that I know to use to evaluate, everything was working, and it was working in a way that just amazed me. And then through a visa issue that seems completely unwarranted and unjustified, poof, in a matter of months, they're gone. And as, as I've grappled with it over the time I've known it was happening, I've so often thought and prayed and wondered just how can this be good for our work? Like, 
what are you doing, Lord, in this? Why wouldn't you want them to stay right there where they are, where they, in this city that they love, where they're being so fruitful? I need the perspective of this text right here. Who knows what joy God means to bring to their new city because their visa was denied in their old one. All we need to know is that he knows and that they'll take the gospel with them to this new place and trust him with the results. I need the comfort of that perspective, don't you? Or or think right now about our own church dealing with ministry in this pandemic era, if you will. Think about how badly constrained we are right now. I mean, I'm super grateful to be here in person with all of you guys. It's, it so beats the Zoom era that we had together over the, in the spring. But I mean, come on, it's not normal. You all got masks on, you're spread all out. We can't hug on one another like we usually do. How can this be good for the building of our church? Half of us aren't able to be here in person right now. And the culture of welcome and hospitality and joy that you guys have built around here is literally veiled and buffered by space. And it's tough for visitors to find us. And there's no doubt many who are uncomfortable visiting churches right now in general, even if they did know where to look for us. And on top of all of it, there's the isolation that so many of you feel and the difficult task we have of pursuing each other well with so many restrictions. And I'm thinking to myself, God, how can this be good for our church? You love us. I know you do. We see your fruit at work in our church's life. Why this? Why now? I don't know. And this text reminds me, I don't have to. He does. He knows. His work goes on. And what's for us to do is to look for the new opportunities that this weird unasked for time has given us as a platform for the gospel just like Philip running for his life found a fruitful field he didn't know was there and friends just as encouraging as this is for us as a congregation there there is comfort here for every single one of you as individuals too even if your trials have nothing to do with persecution even if you are not on the run for your life and no one's ever said a cross word to you about Jesus Where your life is hard, God is still at work. His sovereignty extends to every part of every life. And so does his love and his concern for his children. And so does his commitment to work in all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you're a Christian, that's you. You can take comfort in the sovereignty of God today. And you can know that this same sovereignty, whatever else he's doing in your life, whatever he may have brought into it, you wish he'd take right on out of it. Whatever else he's doing, he is giving you an opportunity to tell the truth about Jesus. Is your life at home a lot more difficult than it used to be? Childcare coming more difficult? Schooling thrown for a, for a loop? What gospel opportunity has God given you in that? Maybe extra time with your kids? Extra opportunity to point them to Christ? 
fear about getting this sickness and what it might do to you? What gospel opportunity has he given you in your fear to speak to your fearful neighbors with a different hope than perhaps they have so that you can offer it to them in Jesus' name? Whatever he's brought to your life right now, he's also brought to you an opportunity to trust in Christ for yourself and to offer that same trust to anyone who will take it. You got a chance to bear witness to Jesus. That's the comfort of God's sovereignty, friends. That's the point of this first story that we've looked at. Well, with the last minutes that I have available, I want to change gears a little bit. I want to take you to the next story in this chapter and to the challenge of God's sovereignty because we need to see that too. We'll have a better time enjoying the comfort of God's sovereignty if we'll let ourselves first be challenged by it. And that's what this story helps us to do. I want to pick back up in reading at verse 9 and read through verse 25. This, is, uh, this, this section is still in Samaria. It's still focusing on Philip's ministry there. But now the main focus is on a man named Simon. I want you to pay attention to what we learn about him. Verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he'd not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Now when they testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. I think I ought to say right here at the top of this section that there are some real important questions raised by what we just read that I won't have time to address in the abbreviated format that is this COVID-era Trinity worship service. 
I've only got a few minutes left, so I don't have, specifically don't have the time I'd like to have to go into the question of why these new believers don't get the Spirit until Peter and John arrive on the scene to lay their hands on them. That's not how the Spirit comes in other parts of Acts. So why does it happen like that here? I think that's a real important question. It, it's one that a lot of ink has been spilt trying to answer. And, and it's one I'd be happy to talk to you about if you're interested in offline sometime. I lean towards seeing this as a delayed gift that normally comes at conversion that was delayed for specifically to, to make it clear that what these Samaritan Christians enjoy is the same exact thing that was enjoyed in Jerusalem. The Samaritans were, were despised by many in Israel because they were seen as less than a separate class and race even from the Jews themselves. And, and so here the gospel spreads beyond its original hearers. And this symbolic act shows it's the real thing. Peter and John say so. They were there when the Spirit first came down, and they were there when it came down on these people. But I won't say more about that question, because it takes us away from what I see as the central theme of this story, a theme that ties this story so closely to the one we've just considered. See, I, I believe this story right here is also a story about God's sovereignty and a reminder to us that though you can trust them, you can't control them. You can trust him, but you cannot control him. Luke tells us that this man, Simon, was watching Philip's ministry with a unique and personal interest because this man, Simon, was used to amazing people with his power. He sees something in Philip that looks familiar, only better, and he wants in on it. We aren't told what sort of things he was doing, much less where his power came from, but we're definitely told what he used his power for. Verse 9 says that he said of himself that he was somebody great and that the crowds echoed that back. This is one with the power of God, and Simon just let that fall. He was just fine collapsing the difference between God and himself. He admires Philip's work as a man given to captivating the masses. But where Luke tells us that the crowds paid attention to what Philip said, that's verse 6, and that the signs just supported the words about Jesus, Luke tells us only that Simon saw the signs and the miracles, and he was amazed by them. That's verse 13. Yeah, he believes to some extent. He's even baptized here. Just as many people crowded around Jesus as long as he kept his miracles going and kept his mouth shut. But what sort of belief Simon has and where that belief comes from becomes really clear when Peter and John show up from Jerusalem to meet these new believers and to share with them the gift of God's Spirit. The power that so amazed Simon, he now sees being offered to those who believe and he wants in. But he doesn't just want the power. What he asks for is the chance to give the power, to control the power, not just to experience it, but to dispense it at his discretion. He wants to be able to lay his hands on whoever he wants to lay his hands on and give them that power. Another way to put this is that he wants what he's always wanted. His heart hasn't changed yet. It loves the same things it always has. He just sees a new and more promising supplier. So verse 19 Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Which is to say, really, he's still practicing magic. 
He's not yet yielding his life to the care and direction of a sovereign Lord. That's why Peter responds the way he does. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is not yours to control. He sets his own terms and answers to no one. And his goodness comes only ever as a free gift. It also matters what Peter says back to Simon. The intent of your heart is the problem. Your heart is not right before God. He basically just wants to be God, or more precisely, to control him, which is the same thing, really. He sees God as a means to his ends. It reminds me of a passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, where he talks about science and magic and how at least in the medieval times, in the ancient times, whenever science was really getting its legs under, it was actually kind of developing on parallel with, with the serious practice of magic, aimed at basically the same things, control of the environment around you, levers you can pull to get the results that you want to get. Lewis says the serious magical endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. One was sickly and died, the other strong and throve, but they were twins. They were born of the same impulse. And I read this quote to you to try to help you see and me remember that that same impulse behind magic that we would so easily write off or just lump in with fantastical story, fairy tales these days still lives in us, still runs deep and can still deeply affect our posture toward God. What is this challenge for you and me? Well, if you're here this morning, or this afternoon rather, and you're still considering Christianity, what it means to follow Jesus, and you're wondering, the first thing I want to say to you is that, that, that there are versions of Christianity out there that will tell you you can get what God offers you if the price is right. That there is prosperity to be had if you follow the right ministry or pay the right installment. And, and friend, that is just not true. It's a lie. God's gifts come free, always and only free. You can't obtain them by money, and he doesn't ask you to. The only thing you need to enjoy everything God offers is to trust all of your life to him, to repent of your sin against him and to trust the forgiveness that Jesus offers you. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians that it's by grace you're saved, through faith, and even that faith is not a result of works, but is a gift from God. And if you do trust your life to him, then what you'll need to know is that it'll take you a lot of work to rest well in his care. Because Christian friend, how much of your time and energy do you still find yourself spending working and wishing and worrying about control over your life. Even if you've never consciously thought of your desire for control as a statement about God, it really is. It really is. It's a grasping for power that belongs to him to aim that power at ends that you've designed for yourself. And this is a sovereign God. This, this, this only God who is is a sovereign God that just can't be controlled like that. He is not the means to our ends. 
His sovereignty that comforts us also challenges us. This story, in other words, is a frontal assault on my default mode and one that I need to absorb. How about you? At the beginning of this sermon, I read to you from this book, this memoir book that, that, that told us that we're in control of our lives. I asked, hey, does that sound good to you? What is that? What, how does that land on you? And, and, and then what does the Bible have to say to that perspective? And that's the question I want to answer now as we close. The perspective of these stories speaks straight to what I read to you at the beginning. Your life and what comes of it doesn't come down to you and what you can make of it. That's just not true. God rules. And even the hard things work for good in his people. And God does not exist to make all your dreams come true. He doesn't exist to open the windows when the door is slammed in your face so that you never have to take no for an answer. Your dreams are not his marching orders. He may ask you to lay those dreams down. And if you want to experience the comfort of God's sovereignty, friends, you must accept its challenge too because you can't have one without the other. But honestly, that's really good news. Because when you know you can trust him, you've got no need to control him. You can just rest on him instead. Let's pray now that he'll give us that ability. Father, we have seen you at work through your word and it echoes uh, what we've seen in our own lives. We, we, we know you to be good but we also know ourselves to often be faint of heart and quick to forget. And so we ask you to help us to trust, to give up control and to yield to your ways and to ask only that you be with us in whatever you bring to us and to look only for our opportunities to trust on Jesus and to bear witness to him through all of it. And we pray this in his name holy name.